Well, good morning. For those of you who do not know me, I'm Thomas Hudson. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to preach for us this morning from Mark chapter 10. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to sort of give you the landscape of where we are and what we've been doing. Um, today is the last day in our series that we've called Habits of a Healthy Church. Uh, you've heard multiple times this morning what our mission is, which is to glorify God by helping people know Jesus and make Him known both in D.C. and around the world. And our strategy to accomplish that mission is simply habits or rhythms that we should be practicing as a church. And as we look to the Scriptures, uh, what we see and what we are convinced of is that healthy churches do at least these four things. Okay, They equip, which is to teach the disciples all that Jesus has commanded. They pray to devote themselves in confident prayer uh, and desperate and confident prayer. They also serve, which is what we're going to be focusing on today, to selflessly serve the neediest among us. And also we go. We send and support church planters and missionaries uh, locally and globally, uh, like the missionaries that uh, uh, Jared just prayed for, Logan and Carla Douglas. And what we believe is that we hold firm to true doctrine and God's Word that has been passed down to us from age to age. We've been given God's Word in order that it might lead us and activate us to do good works. Those works show up in these habits and rhythms of a healthy church. Because the Word tells us, James is clear, that if, the, if our faith and doctrine do not move us into action, then we have dead faith. We are to be a people of God who are both hearers and doers of the Word because that Word is a living and active Word that activates us to equip others to pray desperate and obedient prayers and confident prayers to go to the world to take Christ there where He is not known and to serve. And so this morning as we've gathered together, our focus in our habits of a healthy church is the habit of serving or serve. In the text that we're going to look at today, in Mark chapter 10, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. If you're unfamiliar with the Scriptures, you have the New Testament, starts about halfway through. You have the Gospel of Matthew, and then there's Mark, and you go down to Mark, or over to Mark chapter 10, almost at the very end, in 10, 35 to 45. But in this text, what we're going to see is that Christ, Christ Jesus, is our great servant. He has come to establish a kingdom and a people who are empowered by His selflessness and sacrifice rather than being empowered by the ways of the world. Jesus then is the ultimate servant who turns power-hungry sinners into selfless servants and slaves of all. And when he, we, as His people, follow in His ways, we're able to accomplish the, uh, the mission of the church by serving those in need, both within the body and outside of the body who are not yet followers of Christ. So look with me to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. 
And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, that's Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever for, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to Jesus, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. Jesus said, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to Him, We are able. Jesus said, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and to sit at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard that they began to, when they when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we are in desperate need of the service of Jesus Christ. However, I am afraid that many of us have come in here, Father, not knowing that we are so desperately needy. Help us see that our suffering servant King has served us in a mighty way. And that we are His followers and we want to be selfless and serving others. God, help us take our eyes off of ourselves. Help Your Word be planted deep in us that it bears fruits of service in our lives. Father God, help us see the deep and desperate needs of ourselves in this room and the others and whom You allow us to cross paths with, Father, that we might serve them well. That we might meet intense physical needs, Father God, and meet intense spiritual needs. God, I am convinced that there is much physical need around us. But there are many who have no idea of their intense spiritual need. Awaken our city 
to their desperate need of your Savior and our suffering servant. And may we be a people who take Him and live like Him among this in this city, Father God. For Your glory, for the advancement of Your kingdom, for the expansion of Your church, Father God. Not merely the growth of Pillar Church. Not merely that we might be able to be counted as doing good things. May Your name be famous. May Christ be made known in us and through us, Father. I pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Alright, so the main point of this text that we have before us today is that Jesus, Jesus Christ is the great servant King who has a kingdom filled with selfless, sacrificial servants. If you walk away with anything this morning, Jesus has come as a servant king to establish a kingdom filled full of selfless, sacrificial servants. Now, as we preach through a series like the Habits of a Healthy Church, we're not walking through a book of the Bible. So we're sort of jumping into the middle of Mark chapter 10 here. So I just want to give us a little bit of context. Uh, on the screen behind us, I think there's a, a, a breakdown of the Gospel of John. It'd be helpful for you just to have some handlebars. But Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45, is in the middle of, the, of Mark's Gospel. And, and what's going on here in this section is that Jesus and the disciples have left Galilee and are now making their way into Jerusalem for Jesus' final, the final week of Jesus' life where He will go and be in Jerusalem and then die on the cross. And on the way, on the way, Jesus is teaching the disciples what does it really mean to follow Me? What does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our sacrificial, selfless King? And so, Jesus says that He's going to make His way to Jerusalem and con and, and as Mark is conveying this to his audience, uh, that Jesus is going to make his way to Jerusalem and serve his disciples by being a ransom for them. And so you see that word, and I read it there in, in chapter 10, verse 45, a ransom for many. Well, it would help us to know what a ransom is. Just a, a, a good definition for ransom is that it is a price paid to provide the release of someone who is held captive. A ransom is a price paid to provide for the release of someone who is held captive. And we're going to take a closer look to that as we work our way through the text as we get to 1045. But I want you to know that it's in the final section of Mark's Gospel, as Mark closes out his Gospel, that it's all about Jesus' final days in Jerusalem as He cleanses God's house, submits to the Father's will, and drinks the cup of God's wrath and is baptized into the judgment on behalf of His disciples. It's at the cross that Jesus ultimately serves His people by His death. So, at, so it is in the cross of Christ that where, where Jesus' disciples have the ultimate example to mimic their servant King by serving others. Jesus has come, He's lived, and He's died not to perpetuate earthly kingdoms of selfish, tyrannical, power-hungry pseudo-kings. That's not what Jesus has done. 
He's not establishing the ways of the world. But He has come to establish a new kingdom filled with selfish, sacrificial, humble servants. So our text today is all about us. All about our selfless king. Our sacrificial king. And this, this, this section of Mark 10, 34, 35 to 45 can be broken into two sections. Now, I've called these sections the request and the response. And these will provide the structure for the rest of the sermon as we take a closer work, look at Jesus' words and how they apply to our lives today. So, first, in verses 35 to 37, the request. James and John, what are these guys up to? Jesus, do for us whatever we ask. They come to Jesus and they literally ask Jesus to write them a blank check in which they can cash. These two brothers are quite bold. Their question smacks of an ulterior motive. And, and I'll be honest, this is not quite unlike my children who come to me with requests like, Papa, if I had a million dollars, would you? Children, I'm going to be honest with you here. If you start a request with a bride, I can nearly 100% guarantee you that the answer from your parent will be no. They may hear you out, but the answer will be the same. But interestingly, Jesus just doesn't say no. He says, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? When they ask for this unlimited request, Jesus seeks to teach them. Their request is quite unique. I mean, at this point in their lives, as they're making their way to Jerusalem, it's very likely that they are three years into following Jesus. In 1032, look just above our passage, it says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And they've been on this road for quite some time. And and at this point, it's like, guys, do you not see what's going on? In following Jesus, they literally could have just probably taken stock of the current situation to come to the realization that Jesus is not some mighty military king who's going to have cabinet level positions to dole out once he establishes his power and rule in Jerusalem. However, we see that James and John are actually blinded by their ambition to the reality of the circumstances and they're thirsty for power and for glory. James and John have the same motive that the Gentiles do. They want to simply dispose of Rome. They want to dispose of Rome with the same power and rule that Rome used to suppress and reign over them. They want to use the same power to dispose Rome. And so, they have ulterior motives. They have a desire to arrive in Jerusalem with Jesus, their military king, and use the same tyrannical power of Rome. They want... A one-for-one -one power swap using the same tactics, the same authority, and the same power structures already established in the world. 
Ultimately, they want to use the means and methods of man for their own gain as they march with Jesus into Jerusalem. James and John simply want to use the ways of the world, brute force, seats of authority, prestige, because they have set their minds not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus is not a powerful leader who's going to crush Rome and set up a kingdom that looks like something that the disciples have already seen before. So what are they doing making this request? And what is Jesus going to do here? Amazingly, He responds to them to pull their motives out into the light and not tell them to get out of the way and get out of here. Making such a crazy request. Guys, why haven't you gotten it yet? He doesn't do that. He pulls them in, exposes their motive, and teaches them the ways of God. He uses this as an opportunity to teach. So we see their request, and nearly how silly it is, but where I want to spend a lot of time here is that Jesus responds. What is his response in 38 to 45? Again, Jesus exposes the motives of James and John in teaching them what is truly going to happen. Jesus knows that the establishment of his kingdom doesn't come by the means and methods of man. The world says that kingdoms rise and fall by the one who has the most power, who can use their authority the best, and who have the most prestige and glory. But the kingdom of God is not founded upon those means. Jesus reveals that His kingdom is going to be a kingdom that comes through acts of sacrifice and God's sovereign plan. He communicates the way of sacrifice and the sovereignty of God first to James and John in 38-40 to and then to the rest of the disciples. So first, let's look at James, Jesus' address to James and John in 38-40. to Jesus says, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. Oh yeah, we're able, Jesus. And Jesus said that the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Notice there's already a plan in place to establish a kingdom. And it's not going to come by the means of the world. Jesus informs them that they do not know exactly what they're asking. And then He alludes to suffering and sacrifice on His part. He asks them if they're able to participate in the suffering required of those of the kingdom of God, which literally looks like wrath and judgment. Boys, are you guys prepared to participate in the wrath and judgment? They state that they're able, but we must take Jesus at His words. They really don't know what is required of them, nor of the disciples who will follow. 
them. Jesus has to tell them that they will indeed participate in the suffering of the kingdom. And I want us to just briefly remember what Luke writes in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. It's James, the brother of John, of the sons of Zebedee, who is killed by the sword at Herod's request. And it's John who is banished to Patmos where he actually writes the book of Revelation. Which is fitting here because next week we start preaching through the book of Revelation. Please come and join us next Sunday. But suffering of the, the suffering of the servant king and those who follow him is not a new idea in Mark's Gospel or in Jesus' teaching. Note with me that all along the journey, Jesus has told the disciples that He is going to die. All along the way to Jerusalem, Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 30, Mark chapter 9, verse 8, uh, Mark 9, 30 to 31, and now right before this in 10, 33 to 34, He has warned the disciples that He is going to go to Jerusalem and die at the judgment of the unjust religious rulers and at the hands of the Gentiles. Additionally, Jesus was very clear in one of His most well-known teachings. Many of us are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. And how does He start that? He tells them, He tells those sitting under His teaching that there will be persecution for His name's sake. However, Persecuted followers should not lose heart because theirs is the kingdom of heaven and the inheritance or reward is great in heaven. Jesus says that it's worth it to follow Him. It's worth it to give ourselves up. It's worth it to mimic Him and follow Him in selflessness and servitude. So following Jesus will require some measure of drinking the cup and being baptized with the baptism with which Jesus was baptized. This is probably not the answer that James and John were looking for. And then Jesus reveals to the disciples that God has had a sovereign plan for the the distribution of those who will sit in those seats in 1040. What's amazing about this is that Jesus, while living when He lived, doing the things that He did, He knew that He was in complete submission to the will of the Father. Jesus is not a subversive Son attempting to overthrow the will of His Father or misuse His authority and to put people in power who don't belong in power. He is ultimately saying that those seats have God-ordained occupants, and He is not in position to grant those seats to anyone. Yes, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but He also understands that and fully executes the responsibilities which He's been given as a Son. He is not the one naming cabinet positions. He is the one sacrificially and selflessly serving, giving Himself so that sinful men created in His image, can occupy seats that they have no business occupying. Jesus has come to be sacrificial and selfless in giving Himself up so that those who do not belong in those seats can occupy those seats. 
Christ secures the seats by giving Himself His forgiveness, His righteousness, and cleansing and holiness to those sinners who desperately need it. When those who are appointed to those seats understand that they are to mimic Him in sacrifice and selflessness, then and only then will the designations be revealed to those whom they belong. Then and only then will we know the ranking in heaven, who is first among us. And the one who is first among us, who sits upon the throne, is the Lamb of God, who gave Himself as a sacrifice for us. But Jesus' response doesn't stop with James and John. Now we find out that the rest of the disciples are indignant. They're angry. What are you guys doing? Not as though they really get it. They really understand. No, you beat us to the punch. They're like, oh no you didn't. Hold my cell phone and watch this. But Jesus steps up and He doesn't let it go any further and He draws all of His disciples close to Him and He teaches them again. They're angry with one another. And Jesus doesn't kick them out of His presence and say, guys, get out. What are y'all doing? He says, come here. Come close. He reminds the disciples in 42-45, to He called them to Himself and said to them, He teaches them that his, the ways of God are not the ways of the Gentiles. God's kingdom will not be filled with tyrannical, power-hungry lords like yourselves, but selfless, sacrificial servants and slaves of all. Do you hear that? How does that ring in your ears? God's kingdom is not filled with power-hungry lords, but selfish, sacrificial servants and slaves of all. And then, Jesus reveals that all of this has been within God's sovereign plan from the beginning. Because the arrival and establishment of His kingdom doesn't include Jesus being served. He is not like a Gentile king. Jesus is unlike any king who has ever ruled the earth. He is the Lamb of God who rules with love, grace, mercy, not unbridled power. And such a good and heavenly King, He does not need the service of any man. Rather, the plan from before the foundation of the world was that Christ would come to serve those who truly follow Him. He would give Himself as a ransom for many in 1045. And this imagery, what would have been going off in the minds of the disciples at this point, if they were good Jewish men, would have been Isaiah 53. Where we learn of the suffering servant. So if you want to, I would encourage you to turn over to 1053 because what we're going to look at is how exactly, what is really packed into this idea of Jesus being a ransom for many and being a servant king. Isaiah 1053 
verses 10 to 12, say this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He had put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. But his kingdom shall, his, his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be acquainted or accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So how are we served by the King? Jesus. He makes a guilt offering. This is going through just back through Isaiah. He makes a guilt offering. He accomplishes or the will of the Lord prospers in His hand. He makes many to be accounted as righteous. He bears their iniquities. He poured out His soul unto death. He was numbered among the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors. How have you been served by Jesus? He has given His life and all of who He is in order that you might be able to stand as righteous before God. Brothers and sisters, this is the Gospel that Jesus is the ransom. Because His ultimate sacrifice is for His... His ultimate sacrifice serves His disciples. He offers Himself to fulfill the will of God for, and justify unrighteous sinners by bearing their iniquity being numbered among the sinners, shouldering their sin, and interceding for us all as an act of selfless service. If you're a Christian here, if you've believed this good news, then you have been served by a selfless, sacrificial servant king. And I don't know about you, I don't know about me, but I needed to be served. You need to be served. We are not a people who grovel and serve in order to have this King love us or grant us grace and mercy. That's not how the economy of God works. We have a servant King who has served us in every way, even while we were sinners, to bring us back into relationship with God. You have been served if you claim the name of Christ and follow in His ways. But I want to tell you, this is the good news for those of you who, have, who do not believe and have not trusted in Christ Jesus. There is one who has served you. There is one who has served you in order that you might be forgiven of your sins and your trespasses. There is one who has shouldered your burden before God in order that you might be reconciled to God. And today can be the day in which you trust in the service of the great servant king. So I ask you, if you've never trusted in this service on your behalf by Jesus before God that you might be counted right with God, 
please come talk to me after this service. Talk to one of our other elders. We would love to talk to you about what it means to be served by Christ and live for Him now. But one of the things I want us to look at now is how does this actually apply to our lives? How does James and John's request and Jesus' response, how does it really affect how we live in this life and serve as Pillar Church of Washington, D.C.? Well, I believe if we're honest, we see a lot of ourselves in James and John. We are enslaved to the ways of the world. Our flesh desires seats of prestige and glory. We want recognition. We want life to be about us. And in the bondage of, to the world and our fleshly de desires is not something that we can simply be broken free of by sheer force or human effort. It won't happen on our own. Our shackles that we have are due to our rebellion against God. And we should pay for eternity. We should be enslaved to our sin and be punished for eternity for that. But God has been kind. An infinitely valuable Savior has served us in order for to pay our debt and release us from our bondage. And the cost, the cost of that release the price of freedom is so high that it required nothing less than the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the selfless, sacrificial servant King. And those who belong to Christ claim the name of Jesus and Lord are no longer their own. He has paid for them with His own blood. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And those of us who have been served by this great Savior Jesus Christ are no longer slaves to the ways of the world, but we are slaves to righteousness. And so, if we truly are slaves to righteousness, then we are going to gladly, willingly, and humbly seek to serve because of the great service that has been rendered unto us. So how should this show up in the life of our church? as we seek to accomplish our mission? Well, first, I'd say it's going to look a lot like us giving all of ourselves, our time, our talent, and our treasures in order to meet the intense physical and spiritual needs of our congregation. Now, we have, in the spirit of Acts 2, given some And met the given to some, and met the needs of those who have risen, uh, who, the needs that have arisen in our church. It is true, we have obeyed our Savior when various needs have arisen from medical bills or rental assistance or the need for a lift or an Uber drive or Uber ride to feeding families who are going through various trials and circumstances and difficulties. We have, as a church, we have risen to the occasion. Praise God for your selfless service to other people in this church. That is wonderful. But I want us to think about this question. That it's not so much about whether or not we have or haven't met the needs. 
But are you and I giving? Are we giving selflessly and sacrificially in a way that reflects our servant King? Are you giving selflessly and sacrificially in a way that reflects the service that has been rendered unto you by Jesus? We as a local visible community of God's people, we are merely stewards. We are not owners. We are stewards of the time, talent, and treasure that God has blessed us with. We can be radically generous with what we've been given. And this is not merely a New Testament way of living. God has called His people from the very beginning to be generous and recognize that those that, that what He has blessed them with is to benefit the community. It's to be for others. God's way of blessing the entire community by call, is, is by calling His people to steward the wealth that He grants us And this cuts against the grain of every economic structure in the world. Capitalism doesn't get it right. Socialism doesn't get it right. Nothing in this world. It's not the ways of this world. It's the ways of God. An Old Testament scholar named Bruce Waltke summarized the teaching of the Proverbs on the righteous this way. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Did you hear that? The righteous, Christ has served us, borne our iniquity, counted us as righteous, Isaiah 53. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of the community. And the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. There is only one place in which you will stand. You will be either counted righteous or you will be counted wicked. And this is not, again, this is not just some Old Testament scholar theorizing, Deuteronomy chapter 24, landowners are commanded not to maximize profits by harvesting the sheaves and picking all the olives and grapes. They don't, lead, they don't just take everything out of the field. Instead, the owner was to leave the produce in the field for the workers and the poor to take through their labor, not through charity. And so when the text reads that the sheaves and olives and grapes shall be for the poor, it indicates a sense of ownership. That the poor own that portion in the field. To treat all of our profits, all of our wealth, all of our assets as individualistically ours is mistaken. We are stewards. Because God owns all of our wealth. Everything belongs to the Lord. He's the owner of it all. You are merely a steward. And the community has a claim on it. So the question is, am I allowing the community, am I allowing the church, particularly us, to have a claim on a portion of what I am stewarding? Some may want to know about percentages. Or how much or to what extent should this be done? Thomas, are you saying my whole house? It's not about percentages. 
because we must not take the New Testament giving principles further than they go. As Christians, we are called to sacrifice and generosity. So you must, in light of the sacrifice of Christ and the generosity of God in His gifts of grace and forgiveness and righteousness, ask whether you are sacrificial and generous with the resources that God has bestowed upon you. So what does this look like? Really practical. Does your calendar look like you serve yourself or your brothers and sisters in Christ? Time. Does your bank account look more like a slush fund for your fun and enjoyment or an accounting of sacrificial giving and generosity for the expansion of God's kingdom? Does your skills, talent, get displayed for your bosses and managers for promotions and placards? Or are you giving your abilities your giftings to one another and the areas of service within the church. Just look at those three things in your life and see who's at the center. Only you, brothers and sisters and friends, only you can answer those questions honestly. Only you know whether you are hoarding or squandering your time, your talent, your treasure on yourself and the ways of the world. It is not so among you. This is not the way of the kingdom of God. This is not the way of our Savior. And for those of us who are members of this church, we have made a promise to one another in our covenant. The covenant says this, we promise to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, the spread of the gospel through all nations, both with our finances and our time. Do not let these words merely be meaningless repetitions, but be a guide to how you live in the kingdom of God as a member of this local church. Is your promise to one another guiding you? Is it guiding your calendar? Is it guiding your checkbooks and your accounting? Is it guiding how God has gifted you as a human being? And in our church, we, I know we've said this multiple times, but it continues to be a real need. We have need. You can give of your time and talents to teach our children downstairs the Gospel. Come alongside parents and families in ministering to our kids on Sunday morning. We need childcare workers. Additionally, it's before our very eyes. We bought a new building. There's going to be upkeep and management of the property. Is there a way in which you can give your time, talent, and treasures in order to maintain this? Not simply to maintain a building to keep the paint fresh, but in order this can be a place where we are equipping, we're serving, we're going, and we're praying in order to accomplish the mission of God. A second way, so you can selflessly give by giving of yourself all of what God has given you to steward. Another way, we partner with DC 127 in order to serve the most vulnerable in our city. 
What is DC 127? I know a lot of times we say that, but what is it? It's a nonprofit that journeys with parents who are socially isolated, overwhelmed, and under-resourced that face significant life challenges and an increased risk of instability. And we mobilize churches. DC 127 mobilizes churches to recruit volunteers to build the support system that preserves families and ensures that children have a safe and healthy home. That's who we partner with. That is an intense need, physical and spiritual need in our community. And I want to share with you some details about this. There are approximately 600 children in the foster care system in Washington, D.C. They come from homes where parents are not able to care for them. There, there are various reasons for this. There is drug use, mental instability, extreme poverty, neglect, and abuse. And when children in our city are found in those environments, social services steps in and removes the child from there, from the home, and then they're placed with a foster family. And, and just so you know, that the goal of the foster system in D.C. Is, not, is always reunification, not adoption. The goal is for the parent to get back on the place where they can care for their child. They give parents 18 months or more to establish stability back in their home. Social services then looks for a family members who are willing to care for the child before keeping, uh, before keeping the foster family as a permanent situation. And then judges and lawyers have to get involved. If the stability is not restored, to move to terminate the rights of the parents. And then that child might come up for adoption. But it's very rare in Washington, D.C. So the primary way which DC 127 helps the children is to provide both foster family, a foster family and a support network for foster families. So how can we meet the needs of DC 127 as we give sacrificially? Well, we do give money, but you can pray. Pray for parents to get stability back in their lives. Pray for the judges and the lawyers who have to make very extremely difficult decisions to take a, a child away from their family. Pray that they would make just and good and wise decisions. Another way that you can support DC 127 is be trained to be a foster family support, a supporter, where you come around a foster family and you help them if they are the ones taking care of. You run errands for them, do various things. Walter Conkle, uh, he was in the back, he's up here playing the piano this morning. Walter is, well, I'm sorry, Walker, Walker Conkle is our um, liaison with DC 127. He would be glad to talk to you about that. If you can't find Walker, please come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about serving with DC 127. Also, a way in which you can help out is become a qualified foster parents for one of the 600 children who need foster care in D.C. And along the same lines of providing foster care is adoption. Adoption is a real need. And we as a church have sacrificially set aside each year going forward $5, a $5,000 adoption fund. You can apply for assistance from this adoption fund. We know that adoptions are extremely costly. 
and we want to be able to provide significant aid to help a family make the decision to adopt, to selflessly serve some of the most needy children in our city and in our world. And we understand that adopting not only is expensive, expensive, it is a long, drawn-out process. We can testify to that, can't we, Jared? However, it's not impossible. And there are many children who need adopting in D.C. Additionally, there are thousands of children in the U.S., thousands around the world that need adoption. They need a forever family. And I would ask you simply to consider, is foster care or adoption the next step that God is leading you to grow your family? So Mark 10, 35-45, we see that Jesus is this great servant King. He's a kingdom filled with selfish, sacrificial servants. The disciples struggle with the establishment of this new kingdom, but Jesus lovingly and carefully exposes their motives and teaches them a different way. His way. Greatness and prominence in Jesus' kingdom come by the way of being a selfless, selfless, sacrificial servant and slave of all. We can do this by stewarding our resources well, by participating in DC 127 and our partnership with them, and we can do it by adopting. As we come to the end of our sermon, I want us to respond. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to go into the Lord's Supper. Father God, thank You for this time in Your Word. Thank You for the challenging words that we have from Your Son. The ways of His kingdom are not the ways of this world. May we be a church who follows our Savior in selfless, sacrificial service. May we, God, if it would be Your will, may we be counted great in Your kingdom because we gave all of who we are for Your glory, the advancement of Your kingdom, and the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.